Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hello and welcome to Dark Poutine. I'm Mike Brown, creator and host. With me this week, again, is my good friend, guest host, Matthew Dad of Dark Poutine's much love and photographed unofficial mascot, Steve the British Bulldog. You said again like you're disappointed. I'm not disappointed. <laughs> I hope your fans aren't either. <laughs> they aren't. They love you. The views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense, and some listeners may find it disturbing. We're not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We're too Ordinary Canadian schmoes chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and a Nanaimo bar. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Terms and conditions apply. July 28, 2010, Nadine Ann Taylor, a 29-year-old mother of two in Halifax, Nova Scotia, left the Convoy Avenue apartment in Fairview that she shared with her boyfriend, Jean. Nadine, who did not have a telephone, told Jean she was going to a nearby payphone to make a call. She was never seen alive again. This is Dark Poutine, episode 168, The Murder of Nadine Ann Taylor. When Nadine didn't come home that night, Jean was concerned, but only mildly so. Nadine was a sex worker. Perhaps she was off with a client she had not told him about. As the hours dragged on, Jean was more angry than worried. Both he and Nadine were known to disappear from time to time, off feeding their addictions. Nadine's was crack cocaine. According to people who knew them both, despite their difficulties, the pair really did love one another. Typically, after getting what Nadine needed to keep the pain of withdrawal away, she would come home to Jean. Jean assumed that's what had happened this time, and that Nadine would turn up at some point in the next few hours. But she didn't. Jean became more and more concerned. After more than two full days had passed since Nadine had left their apartment, there was no sign of her. It wasn't like Nadine to be gone so long. Jean hopped on his bike and cycled around the city, looking for Nadine in her usual haunts, talking to her friends, but no one had seen her. He didn't want to do it, but he finally contacted the police on July 31, 2010, and reported Nadine missing. Halifax police were familiar with Nadine. She'd been a worker in the city's sex trade since she'd dropped out of high school years earlier. 
Prior to her disappearance, she'd been involved in an unsolved, violent sexual assault when one of her dates had gone sideways. In his conversations with police, Jean expressed concern about one of Nadine's clients, a regular. Jean didn't like the guy and thought the client had become too close to Nadine and had confronted the man. Jean thought maybe Nadine had been taken by her client angry after Jean had called him out and told him to stop seeing Nadine. Cops talked to the client that Jean had named, but he claimed he hadn't seen or heard from Nadine either since she disappeared, recalling his run-in with Jean. Police canvassed other sex workers along the city's south end stroll where they usually plied their trade, picking up Johns who drove by slowly. No one had seen her at all. There were a lot of scenarios that could have taken place that resulted in Nadine's disappearance. All of them had to be considered. Perhaps the man who had earlier assaulted Nadine had returned for more. Maybe she and her fiancé Jean had had an altercation that had gone badly. It had been almost three days until he reported her missing. There was also Nadine's regular client whom Jean had said was too close to her. Perhaps she rejected him and he'd reacted violently. Maybe she'd overdosed somewhere and had not yet been found. Maybe she had simply taken off for greener pastures. Her family and friends thought that unlikely. No one seemed to know anything. It was not until three weeks after Nadine's disappearance that police got a break in the case, and it was a weird one. On August 16, 2010, a man named Stephen Elliott Laffin called Halifax Police for assistance from one of their community policing offices. He had a bizarre story to tell. He claimed he'd seen an injured woman walking along Old Sambro Road to the south of the city and had picked her up to assist her. Laffin said that she'd become combative in his car and he said he had to put her into the trunk for her own safety and his. Laffin complied when the responding officer asked him to open the trunk of his car, but when it opened, it revealed that there was no one in the trunk. Stephen Laffin had a lot of questions to answer, so police held him for an interview. Police were very familiar with Stephen Elliott Laffin too. He had a criminal record from court documents. He had been on probation in the past, no problems while on probation. His record includes robbery in 2006, theft under, failure to attend, and assault causing bodily harm committed after he was remanded on the charges before the court. According to CBC News, the judge, Justice Jamie Campbell, who Laffin came before in 2007, had written that Laffin had, quote, a dignified carriage and wore carefully chosen business suits. At 32 years old, he appears in every outward respect to be a person who should be looking forward to a bright future, Campbell wrote. According to the documents, Laffin lost his job on a cruise ship only to come home and discover that his wife had emptied the family bank account. Laffin had since taken employment at a Tim Hortons and had worked his way into a supervisory position there. The judge thought that this was commendable, saying, quote, He has apparently, through work and dedication, committed himself to re-establishing his life it is in society's best interest that he be encouraged in that endeavor. Shortly before this incident with the mystery woman in his trunk, Laffin had been accused of assaulting a Halifax sex worker. 
Laffin had been charged with her assault, but when the victim of the assault was a few minutes late for court on the day she was set to testify, the whole thing was thrown out. These were the days before the decriminalization of prostitution in Canada. Before the changes that came in Bill C-36 in 2014, it was difficult for a sex worker who'd been assaulted to report a crime in Canada. The assault had come during the commission of an offense after all, so systemically, the assaulted sex worker was between a rock and a hard place, having to admit he or she were themselves performing a criminal act when violently victimized. While Laffin was being questioned about the woman in the trunk, another call came into police. A woman had come pounding on a door off Old Sambro Road, a few kilometers from where Laffin claimed he'd picked up the woman who'd been in his trunk. The woman was badly injured, naked from the waist down. Her hands and wrists had been duct taped, and there was duct tape around her mouth that the assailant had used to secure her after he had subdued her and tossed her into his trunk. The woman later referred to by the pseudonym Roberta in a Halifax Examiner article told the cops that a man she would later positively identify as Stephen Elliott Laffin had violently sexually assaulted her, beaten, strangled, and kidnapped her after taping her. He'd beaten her senseless with a rock and then strangled her with his hands until she'd passed out. Roberta had come too in the trunk. The car was moving. She had dealt with bad Johns before. She was used to being treated as though she were just less than human disposable. This time, she knew she had to act. She feared for her life. As Laffin's car sped along the darkened highway to goodness knows what fate, she saw the latch on the trunk and tried it, remembering what a boyfriend had told her, that you could open a car's trunk from the inside. Thankfully, he was right in this case. The trunk opened. Roberta later told CBC News, quote, I popped the trunk. The trunk came down so hard on me it knocked me out again. I don't know how long I was out. Then I came to and I got up and I pulled the lever and I went out head first and I don't remember anything until I came to on the road. It had to have taken a lot of courage to fling herself onto the blacktop at such a speed. She estimated about 120 kilometers per hour. But she knew it might be her only chance. She assumed if she waited for the car to stop, she might be killed by her attacker. According to Halifax Detective Penny Hart, in Season 1, Episode 7 of the CBC true crime show, The Detectives, Roberta had a badly bruised chest, cuts on her neck, and a nasty road rash over 50% of her body. Perhaps it was the heroin that Roberta had been using at the time that allowed her the moxie to take the chance she did, and dulled the pain just enough for her to make her way to a nearby home for help. Laffin was held on some serious charges stemming from the assault on Roberta. Attempted murder, abduction, aggravated sexual assault, uttering death threats, and forcible confinement. The cops couldn't figure out why Laffin had called them to report the trunk incident. It implicated him. Perhaps he thought they'd buy his cockamamie story and believe his word over a sex worker with serious addiction problems. He was wrong. As Laffin had been accused of violence against local sex workers on more than one occasion, cops began to wonder. 
it could follow that they might have a serial predator on their hands. Perhaps he knew something about Nadine Taylor's disappearance, but he denied having anything to do with it. He said that he had been at home watching TV alone on July 28th, the night of Nadine's disappearance. His now wife, Joanna, was out of town at her friend's for her stagette party. There was blood in Laffin's car, but it turned out only to be Roberta's. Thanks to phone records, police tracked down Nadine's dealer. He told them that he had in fact seen Nadine on the night of her disappearance when she'd come by. She was not alone. She'd been driven there by someone in a silver SUV. But who was it? Laffin drove a different car, not an SUV. Further investigation, though, determined that Stephen Elliott Laffin had been in a car accident sometime before Nadine's disappearance. He'd been driving a rental car that night, a silver SUV. A thorough search of the rental vehicle turned up a significant amount of blood in the rear of the car. Another search warrant was drawn up and executed on the little yellow house that Laffin shared with his wife Joanna at number 51 at the very end of Weyburn Drive in Dartmouth. Police thought, perhaps, that was the scene of the crime. There was blood in the house, a lot of it. Most of the blood they discovered was in the basement of the home, all over the walls which had been cleaned. Luminol did the trick. For those of you who have never seen an episode of CSI, quote, Luminol is a chemical that exhibits chemiluminescence with a blue glow when mixed with an appropriate oxidizing agent. Crime scene investigators use luminol to find traces of blood even if someone has cleaned or removed it. The investigator sprays a solution of luminol in the oxidant. The iron in blood catalyzes the luminescence. The amount of catalyst necessary to cause the reaction is very small relative to the amount of luminol, allowing the detection of even trace amounts of blood. The blue glow lasts for about 30 seconds per application. Detecting the glow requires a fairly dark room. Any glow detected may be documented by a long exposure photograph. Forensic investigators determined that the amount of blood discovered in the basement was enough that whoever had shed it was in all likelihood deceased. Police questioned Joanna, who said Stephen claimed he'd been mugged in his driveway while she was out of town at her stagette. He'd been beaten badly. The blood, spattered all over the basement, he'd told her, was his He'd even convinced her to help him clean it up as their wedding was to take place in only a few days and people were coming over. They couldn't leave the house in such a mess, he'd said. Joanna couldn't believe what her husband had been accused of at first. She said Laffin was a good guy and she couldn't reconcile him hurting anyone. She has since divorced him. Police went back to Jean and Nadine's, gathering Nadine's toothbrush for a DNA comparison to all the blood that they were finding. They asked about Nadine's shoe size. Investigators had also found a left sandal in Laffin's house, and Joanne had told them it did not belong to her. Laffin must have missed it in his hasty cleanup efforts. On August 20, 2010, Jean told CBC Nova Scotia that the police had been at his place asking questions and gathering evidence. Quote, She's not known for going out of the province or anything like that, he said. It's just rough. You hear of people going missing, like prostitutes and everything, and then it strikes home base. It's like a volt of electricity hitting you steady in different directions. He said he is doing what he can to keep the faith. 
I know she's going to come home, like walk through that door one day, he said, and I will be waiting for her, end quote. From the same CBC article, quote, an outreach worker who knows Taylor said she fears the worst. I think she was killed, said Margot Deschamps. It's part of the life. Unfortunately, with prostitution and drug addiction, it's part of the ends. Police were in the house for 10 days gathering evidence. During that time, Stephen Elliott Laffin confessed to killing Nadine Taylor. Sort of. He said he'd killed Nadine in self-defense, just like he'd defended himself by putting Roberta in the trunk of his car. Nobody believed Laffin. He was charged with Nadine Ann Taylor's murder in October of that year and was held for trial on her murder and the charges related to the attack on Roberta. We'll take a break right here. And we're back. The police released a statement in September 2010 stating that based on the ongoing investigation, they now believed Nadine Taylor had met with foul play and were treating the case as a homicide. They said that the investigation into the matter was ongoing. On October 28, 2010, Stephen Elliott Laffin was in court to face a single charge of second-degree murder. Sure, Laffin had kind of owned up to causing Nadine Taylor's death, but stopped short of admitting to murder. He was not saying where he had put Nadine's body, either. He held on tight to that tidbit, most likely as a bargaining chip. A Facebook group, set up by friends and family of Nadine Taylor at the time of her disappearance, brought up concerns that the media had dehumanized Nadine. On October 30, 2010, Deborah Foote wrote, quote, My daughter knew Nadine. What a sad, tragic end to a young life. Some of the newspaper headlines really get to me, like when they say, Streetwalker, or Halifax Prostitute, SMFH. Does that really matter? Nadine was a human being. She was someone's child, someone's sister, grandchild, etc. Her lifestyle was no one's business. Everyone makes their own way in life, and they should not be judged for it. No one deserves this type of fate. Thoughts are with Nadine's family and friends. May you all find the strength and closure in the time ahead. Rip in peace, Nadine. May justice be served. The comments on the post echoed similar sentiments along with hate for Stephen Elliott Laffin and pointing to inherent systemic classism, venting anger at police for the inaction early on. Devin Lyle commented, quote, And the sad part is, they didn't even bother to look. They failed her like they fail a lot of girls. It seems lately if you have a criminal record, you just don't seem to matter. Why the hell aren't they making that son of a bitch tell them where she is? Why? Because once again, it don't matter. Why are they already saying they're not going to find a body? Why? Because they're not going to bother. Why? Because they don't care. Another commenter, Michelle Reed, said, quote, I agree. She was part of a family. Her father loved her. Her mother loved her. I loved her. Regardless of her lifestyle, she was loved. Everyone remember her for who she was, a person who enjoyed life. Nadine Ann Taylor was more than just a person at risk, or any of the other negative labels heaped on her by an intolerant society. She was a beloved daughter, granddaughter, sister to a brother and two sisters, and a friend of many, and foremost of all, despite her troubles, she was a mother to two little girls. 
In June of 2011, Laffin had a court date to face the charges in relation to his brutal attack on Roberta. On September 16th, Roberta spoke to CBC News about her ordeal. Quote, He was choking me by the throat and I was trying to fight him, but I couldn't do nothing, she told CBC News. He kept knocking me out. He kept putting me out by grabbing my throat. The woman, who was a sex trade worker until the day of the attack, said she got into a man's car in Spryfield and he drove her to a parking lot. She said she was overpowered and sexually assaulted. I remember coming too and I was duct taped, my mouth, my ankles, my wrists, behind my back, she said. I remember waking up because he was undoing my pants at this point. I remember sitting up saying, Shh, listen, there's somebody right there. I was trying to get him to stop, and he didn't stop. He kept going. He kept smacking my head into the ground, my chin, kept slamming my face into the ground, telling me he was going to kill me. Roberta went on to say, him telling me he was going to kill me and whispering in my ear. I can still feel him right there, she said. I see him every night. I can't sleep, end quote. While in custody... An incident between Laffin and another man occurred at the Central Nova Scotia Correctional Facility in Dartmouth. Stephen Elliott Laffin, 37 at the time, was charged with assault causing bodily harm to Clarence Michael McLeod, 57, another inmate charged with second-degree murder. Laffin pleaded not guilty to that assault. It's unclear what that was about. On Monday, January 16, 2012, a nine-day preliminary inquiry into Laffin's murder charges began in Halifax Provincial Court. The judge, Ann Derrick, is the daughter of my favorite high school history teacher, John Derrick. More small world stuff. The inquiry would determine whether a trial should go ahead and what evidence could be presented at that trial. From CBC News, quote, some of Taylor's relatives were in the gallery for Monday's proceedings, along with members of Stepping Stone, an organization that offers support for sex trade workers. On her way out of the court, Donna Taylor, Nadine's mom, told reporters that she didn't want to talk about her daughter except to say that she was, quote, poor, disadvantaged, and helpless. The woman said it was difficult to be in the same room as Laffin. He looks like a demon, she said. Two days into the inquiry, the proceedings had to be moved to a larger room, quote, after a security scare was caused when a female spectator made a trigger motion with her hand as she walked past Laffin, who was seated in the prisoner's bench. The evidence looked good, so Laffin's trial for Nadine's murder was set for October 2012. That month, before the trial was set to begin, Laffin saw the writing on the wall, and rather than take his chances before a jury, he pleaded guilty with a plea agreement made between his lawyers and the Crown attorneys. He pled guilty to second-degree murder. As part of the plea agreement, Stephen Elliott Laffin agreed to show police where he had left Nadine. From a Halifax Police media release on March 1st, 2013, quote, Police locate human remains. Investigators assigned to the HRP-RCMP Integrated Major Crime Unit have located what are believed to be the remains of Nadine Ann Taylor. Earlier today, at 12.15 p.m., investigators were taken to the location of human remains by Stephen Elliott Laffin. The remains were located in the woods off Inlet Drive in East Chesicook. 
Investigators, forensic identification, and the medical examiner office are currently on scene. Nadine Taylor went missing on July 31, 2010 from her Halifax residence. Stephen Elliott Laffin was arrested on September 21, 2010 and charged with her murder on October 28, 2010. He is currently in custody for this homicide and his next court appearance is March 7, 2013 in Halifax Provincial Court. Nadine's remains confirm the cause of her death. Laffin had admitted that he had lured Nadine to his house, beaten her, hit her with a weapon, an axe or a hammer, and bashed her head off the concrete floor in the basement repeatedly until she died. He then wrapped her in a sheet, put her in his rental, and had driven her body out to East Chesicook and dumped her there. Cecil Taylor, Nadine's dad, spoke to reporters outside the Halifax courtroom after the March 7, 2013 entry of Laffin's plea of guilty to second-degree murder in Nadine Taylor's death. Cecil had some angry words for Laffin. He said in part, Well, I knew he was guilty. Everyone knew he was guilty. But the point is, now there's time he's got to serve. Cecil continued, It will never go away, but it's good to know that she can have a burial anyway and not just be thrown on the ground like dirt. Her family could finally put her to rest. According to Nadine's obituary, quote, arrangements were under the care of J. Albert Walker Funeral Home at 149 Herring Cove Road. A visitation was held on Thursday, March 21st from 4 to 7 p.m. with memorial service that evening at 7 p.m. in the funeral home chapel with Reverend Ellen Wilson officiating. Nadine would be interred at a later date. Laffin also pleaded guilty to the charges against him that stem from his assault on Roberta. Sentencing was set for April 25, 2013, and he was to be sentenced for Nadine Taylor's murder first. Finally, the day came. From CBC News, quote, Donna Taylor, Nadine's mother, described sleepless nights and needing therapy since losing her daughter. My daughter Nadine was a precious, dolly girl. She was pretty, funny, loved people, and animals. She would never turn anyone away that needed help or food, Taylor said in her victim impact statement. There are many precious moments and times that I will never share with my daughter Nadine. I know that every special occasion or events that I would have shared with her has been shattered as a result of her being murdered. After the victim impact statements were read into evidence, Justice Felix A. Caccioni said, Mr. Laffin, is there anything you would like to say before I impose sentence? Laffin turned to Nadine's family and spoke. He said, Your Honor, I would just like to first apologize to the families involved here. I can understand their sleeplessness and the nightmares and pain that they feel from what I have done. I too suffer along the same lines, but I doubt to the extent that they do. I know saying I'm sorry won't do anything and it won't bring Nadine back, but I am sorry for everything that I have done and for the pain I have caused, Your Honor. That's it. Justice Caccioni did not seem to take Laffin's apology as genuine, saying, quote, your actions must be denounced, the public must be protected. And he also said, no sentence imposed will ever repair the harm that you have caused to these families. The judge continued, quote, Mr. Laffin, I am not a trained psychiatrist nor a psychologist, but I have been in the criminal law business for almost 40 years, and your actions in this case and the one involving Roberta just a few weeks after you killed Nadine Taylor, together with your lack of remorse and insight into your behavior, leads me to conclude that you are either a psychopath or that you have psychopathic tendencies, 
Whatever that may be, it is clear that you have some serious underlying psychological issues that must be addressed before you can ever safely be released back into society. I am reminded of the words of Dr. Samrau, who testified in the Shrubshaw dangerous offender proceeding. His words were, quote, the best prognosticator of future behavior is past behavior, end quote. You have borne that true. Your actions in these two cases confirms Dr. Samrau's statement. Justice Caccioni finished the sentencing for Nadine's murder, saying, quote, The sentence of this court is that you be imprisoned for life. Further, that you not be eligible to apply for parole for the period of 13 years. Parole ineligibility will begin as of the date of your arrest as mandated by the criminal code, that is, October 19, 2010. This means that Lavin will be eligible for parole in October 2023, just over two years from the release of this podcast. The sentencing on further charges came next. Laffin half-heartedly apologized to Roberta as well. She later indicated she was surprised by that. Before the sentence was read, the judge read from Laffin's pre-sentence report, giving us a little more insight into Laffin's character. The report said, quote, Laffin had a good relationship with his mother and siblings. His father passed away when Stephen was 16. He described himself as the good one in the household. He was fortunate that there was no physical or sexual abuse in his household. He left there when he was 23, was married twice, and has one child from his second marriage. Neither of his former spouses have had any contact with him, and he has no contact with his son. The report also indicated that he had no difficulties in school. He worked at the casino in both Sydney and Halifax, and also as a carpenter. He blames his current difficulties on a gambling addiction. The judge spoke to his concerns about Laffin's lack of personal insight. Quote, Those remarks really are an excuse and an example of the lack of insight that Mr. Laffin has into his behavior. Due to the plea agreement, the charges in this case were brought down from attempted murder or aggravated sexual assault to other lesser offenses. Laffin had pleaded guilty to aggravated assault, confinement, kidnapping, and uttering threats. Taking this all into consideration, the judge sentenced Laffin, quote, With respect to the offense of kidnapping Roberta, with intent to cause her to be confined against her will, the sentence of this court is that you be imprisoned for a period of four years. With respect to the sentence that you did commit an assault on Roberta that endangered her life and you committed aggravated assault on her, the sentence of this court is that you be sentenced to a period of nine years incarceration. Concurrent to any other sentence that you are presently serving. With respect to uttering threats, there will be a sentence of two years concurrent, and with respect to the unlawful confinement, another two years concurrent. All sentences are concurrent to each other and concurrent to your life sentence. So, nothing consecutive. His 13 years in jail, before being able to apply for parole, still stood. While Laffin sits in prison, awaiting his potential release, Roberta continues to struggle with addiction. Jean, Nadine's fiancé, has passed away, following her only a few years later. Canada continues to work on how it deals with people in the sex trade. As mentioned earlier, Bill 36, the Protection of Communities and Exploited Persons Act, enforced since December 2014, treats prostitution as a form of sexual exploitation that disproportionately impacts on women and girls. Its overall objectives were to, quote, protect those who sell their own sexual services, 
protect communities and especially children from the harms caused by prostitution and reduce the demand for prostitution and its incidents. The new criminal law regime seeks to protect the dignity and equality of all Canadians by denouncing and prohibiting the purchase of sexual services, the exploitation of the prostitution of others, the development of economic interests in sexual exploitation of others, and the institutionalization of prostitution through commercial enterprises such as strip clubs, massage parlors, and escort agencies that offer sexual services for sale. It also seeks to encourage victims to report incidents of violence to the police and to leave prostitution. Toward that end, $20 million in new funding has been dedicated to help individuals exit prostitution. One great resource I discovered in my research was that of the Stepping Stone Association based in Dartmouth from their website. Stepping Stone is a charitable organization that provides services and support to current and former sex workers people at risk of entering the sex trade, and people who identify as being trafficked, end quote. From their resources page, under the heading Understanding Sex Work, quote, Society has preconceived notions about who sex workers are and, as a result, condemn them without even knowing them. People assume that all sex workers are addicts or social deviants, were sexually abused as children, and that they are bottom feeders in society. In reality, all sex workers have a story, and they all deserve the same level of dignity and respect afforded to people engaged in the profession of their choosing. Such sweeping generalizations are harmful and hurtful. Like all human beings, every sex worker has a story and a path they are on, and they all deserve. You can learn more at steppingstone.ca. What are your thoughts on the episode so far? Well, I think this sort of thing happens because the, well, happened at the time because it was illegal to be a prostitute. Right. And when you push something underground like that, it becomes more dangerous for people. Mm -hmm. it, look at Willie Picton, for example. Oh my God. That's, that's why that was allowed to go on for so long because those people were marginalized and, and, pushed to less than human. Which is like, I know, well, knew a few prostitutes, mm -hmm. not, not sort of on a professional basis, if you will, but some, personally, somebody who was putting herself through uni while she was, you know, mm -hmm. needed to make some money. And, you know, it's one of these things for every type of prostitute, for every prostitute, there's a type of person, you know what I mean? And they're, yeah. they're human beings. I actually don't like when they're like, they could be somebody's mother or sister or brother. It's like, no, they're just a human being. Can just, we, like, they're yeah. a human being. And I think, you know, when you get a psychopath like this, mm -hmm. who thinks, you know, because prostitutes just represent something like 0.3% of the U.S. population, but something like 40% of murder rates for women. Oh, wow, you did some homework? Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't quote me on the exact numbers, but just put it this way. They're like 200% more likely to be killed. Yeah. And that's dangerous. Yeah. So for me, I'd be, I'm like, first of all, society, stop looking down at people who are mm. doing what they do. Yeah. Number two, don't try to be all moral and judgy and push it underground because that's when people get hurt. Right. You know, open it up, regulate. Mm-hmm. Right. And which is what is going on in Canada right now. Ish. Ish. Yeah. 
because you have the people who are performing the service, mm-hmm. the service that they are performing is no longer criminalized. Right. However, advertising for it is illegal. So you can't advertise your service. It's such the Canadian way, isn't yep. it? And, and and the Johns are illegal. And the Johns, <laughs> yeah, it's, what it's, the Johns are doing is illegal. So someone procuring the service. Which is just, it's, it's you know what, it, that is so Canadian. It's sort of, we're going to try to be liberal, but we're still going to be moral. Right. right. <laughs> you know, just like open it up completely, mm-hmm. regulate it, make sure people have health care, make sure they're looked after. Maybe have there's lots of apps like, hey, if you have a John, like have an app so you can there's somebody who can track where you're going so you're safe. I mean, there's so much stuff to keep people safe now. I right? think that perhaps decriminalization was one step toward legalization. Right. You know, uh well, perhaps. It was sort of like cannabis the industry I've been, right? Mm-hmm. It was sort of, first it was like, well, we're just not going to arrest anybody. And then over time it became illegal. That's right. Yeah. So what are your thoughts uh, about laughing, this Stephen Elliott laughing guy? I'm not laughing, Mike. No, I'm not either. Um, why do you think he called police about this woman, Roberta, who was in his trunk? Why did he call the cops? Because he's a narcissistic douche who thought, okay, oh, she got away. She can, she can tell the police who I am. Mm-hmm. So he thought he would go there to set the context and go, okay, I'm going to go set the context of the story because they're going to believe right. me over right. some hooker is probably the way he thought, right? Right. And luckily, I think some of the police officers were women. Mm-hmm. And yep. I kind of like... A lot of the officers in sex crimes tend to be women. Because they can see through men's bullshit. Well, also because a lot of the people that they are dealing with victim-wise yeah. are women yeah. as well. Well, and, you know, I just, you know, and on like men, women, you know, it's, you know, people are people. But I think in a way, perhaps the fact that they're women helped them have more empathy for her and to see through what he was trying to do. Gotcha. Maybe. I don't know. There's a lot of good male cops out there as well. I'm not saying. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's probably easier for a female victim who's just been victimized by a violent man to deal with a woman rather than some alpha male. Yeah. Who comes in there and says, yeah, we're going to get them. We're going to do all the, all the things. Uh, Maybe the language that a female officer would use as opposed to a male might, might be a little different and have a little different feel to it. And yeah. Make somebody more amenable to you know, opening what, up. When I lived in London, they were doing a big, big push for to get more gay, gay and lesbian cops in. Okay, uh, just to serve the community better because there's a level of understanding of your community, you know. Right, which totally makes sense. What about Roberta? Did you have any thoughts on Roberta? I know what she went through was horrific. Uh, being, you know, having to dive headfirst out of a car God. and insanity. <laughs> <laughs> that bit when she said she popped the trunk open and it slammed back down and knocked her out again. Yeah. I was like, oh my God. You like, poor thing. Oh, yeah. like, can you imagine? Yeah. But like, throwing yourself out of a car, like that's somebody who like has a survival instinct, right? She, she definitely wanted to live. And she's very lucky. Well, it's not luck. She, well, it was luck that she came to and was able to do it. But yeah, mm-hmm. good for her. Yeah, Roberta, just for your information, went on to be involved in another trial that involved another murder that I might talk about at some point in the future. As a victim? No, well, she obviously is. She wasn't a victim if she is uh, 
still still kicking around, but yeah. she was a witness okay. to this person's prior behavior. Oh, God. It's a very small province, Nova Scotia, so people tend to know each other or know somebody who knows somebody. Yeah. There's only a million people there, roughly. Right. So it's uh it's interesting. It's like I knew the judge and Derek who did the preliminary hearing for the for laughing because she was the daughter of Did you know the other judge that said he he's well dressed, so I'm gonna let him go? No, I didn't know that guy. Mm. I know, right? I mean, you know, it's a hard job to do, but just sort of like who cares what he's wearing? Mm-hmm. You know, he's, he's, he, well, there was more to it than that. I didn't get into the whole yeah, thing. Yeah. So he's a supervisor at Tim Hortons. Right. And not to say that being a supervisor at Tim Hortons isn't a, no, but it's, not it's, job. it's, it's like that's not a mitigating factor. The fact that with all the other things that he'd done, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, geez. Yeah. So he's become, he's become a useful member of society. But, uh, yeah, let's see what he, what else that he's done with his life. Uh, I guess that's that. All right, it's time for voicemails. Uh, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven. Well, you can leave us one at one eight seven seven three two seven five seven eight six or one eight seven seven D A R K P T N. And if your call stands out, you might hear it on the show. Let's listen to this first one. It looks like it might be from a local caller, which is just fine. Hey, Mike, it's just Bryce here again. Uh, left a couple things out I wanted to get in last time. Um, you are right. You did hear a rooster. Uh, I live on a little hobby farm here in Surrey with my wife. Uh, cat's out of the bag. She found out about my little uh, secret addiction here. So I got to kind of give her some props for not giving me too much crap. And, yeah, just thanks again for the podcast. And you guys do a really great job. Have a great day. Bye. We were really good noticing that we heard a rooster last Yes. Week. So... That's kind of cool. <laughs> oh, I was going to tell a really horrible joke about what a gay rooster says. Tell it. I don't know if I should because it's it's really offensive. And mm. what does a gay horse eat? What? Hey. <laughs> what does a straight horse eat? Hey. <laughs> okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm not going <laughs> to. People can look up what a gay rooster says if they'd like. Fair. Uh, thanks, Bryce. Here's another. Looks like a few people called in, probably to make up for our lack of calls last week. <laughs> Hi there. My name is Dean. Um, and I just want to say I re-listened to the Ideal Maternity Home episode as a fellow adoptee. Um, it absolutely broke my heart to hear stories like that. Um, I recently found out that the lawyer that handled my adoption was disbarred. If anyone wants to look him up, his name is Stanley Michaelman um, for Legally Selling Children. So that's a fun one. Um, just want to say thank you so much for the joy that you bring to my life. And I really appreciate you and your commentary and all of your wonderful special guests. And go shit in your hat. Have a good day. Well, thanks, Dean. That was awesome. Lovely. I love being go told to go shit in my hat. We all know that now. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Looks like we have a call from someone named Sylvia. Let's listen to this one. Hi. My, my name is Sylvia, and I just messed up my previous voicemail, so please don't play that one, Mike. Um, but I'm calling from Iowa City. 
I have been with you guys since your very first episode, and um, uh, so long-time listener, first-time caller. And I just wanted to say that um, through this very difficult year, you have been such an absolute bright spot. I am a PhD student at the University of Iowa, and um, oddly enough, that has not been an easy time, uh, even despite the pandemic, which you might think would facilitate that. Um, and so oftentimes when I need the chance to relax and lay back and just be zen for a moment, I listen to all the horrible things that have happened in Canada and consider that, you know, despite the fact that I'm the United States is just an absolute chaos zone. I guess it's all over too. So thank you so much for the compassion with which you address these topics. And thank you so much for being a consistent force of good um, just in the world at large. Um, I'm very Midwestern, so this will make me <laughs> uncomfortable to say, but uh, go sit in your hat. Have a great day, you guys. Uh, bye. Well, how about that? Thanks, Sylvia. Look at that. Smart people listen to us, too. I, PhD students. I don't, I'm always surprised that somebody who is, is getting uh, letters after their name bothers to listen to my drivel. Well, she's getting a PhD in physiology. Yeah. She puts the bubbles in carbonated drinks. Physi physiology. <laughs> That's what... <laughs> She's becoming a physiologist. That is terrible. It's an exact science. It is an exact. <laughs> That's really, really bad. Sometimes I think your, I think your jokes are terrible, and then you you find one that's worse. Physiology. Oh, I crack me up. Yes, you do. All right, we have one more. We had oh wow, another one. Hi there, I'd like to request a show. There was uh, Donna Lee Corbett, who happens to be my great aunt, was raped and murdered in 1962 in Quinnell uh, by Aaron Hinton, was his alias. I can't remember his real name. Corky was his nickname. And I'd just be curious to know about it. And her brother, my grandpa, was also convicted of a triple murder in which the victim that was able to point him out was shot three times and lived. And I figured you might be better at looking up this information than I would be. So it'd be cool if you considered it. Thank you. Wow. So. Sorry uh, about your grandma, dude. Yeah. It's. Wow. You know a lot of people who have been involved in murder that's uh that's kind of scary i'll we'll look into those cases absolutely yeah we may or may not cover them but uh sometimes if people call and request a, a case uh i like to say we'll look into it and see how much we can find about it because oftentimes if there's nothing that you can find there's nothing i can find either take down those oh. names yeah oh yeah i've well, got everything here actually we have it recorded Oh, and that's it for this week's voicemails. Don't forget, you can send us a voicemail at one 327 5786 or one 
D-A-R-K-P-T-N. Dark Putin. Dark Putin. It's not Dark Putin. <laughs> I do have uh, somebody sent me a, a mug one time uh, of Putin's head right. on uh, a bowl of poutine. So it's yeah. Putin on poutine. <laughs> and it's all dark. Exactly. <laughs> so I guess that means it's time for us to move on to our patrons. Patrons. Our patrons. Who Who is patronizing us today? <laughs> We we want lots of patronizers, don't we? Right. And we don't have a lot this week, but uh, the ones that we have, we love because we, we love you all. We do. You're all good eggs. You definitely enter good egg territory if you have become a patron of the show. There's no bad apples no. as far as patrons go. Uh, first up, from Pahoenix. See what I did there? Phoenix, Arizona. Uh-huh. Uh, we have... Tammy, what does Tammy do there in Pahoenix? Tammy is a vending machine color. So she culls vending machines? So do you know that more people die in the United States by vending machines than they do by sharks? So she's responsible for hunting down the vending machines that have killed people. And when she kills them, she hangs them upside down for the media, slices them open, to prove from the inside that, you know, an arm or a leg will come out and also maybe some glossettes or like cr- crunchy bars. Glossettes. What a Canadian <laughs> thing that is. Do you know the first vending machine was actually invented about 40 AD? Oh my goodness gracious. No, no I didn't know this. What? Hero of Alexandria. And mm. it was a machine. This is a true story. Uh, it dispensed holy water at temples. Well, there you go. Yeah. So you had to put in a coin and some holy yeah, water. Yeah, and it landed out. on a little tray and, and measured out an exact amount of holy water. Wow. Yeah, but she's a vending machine color. There you go. Well, thank you, Tammy, for culling those dangerous vending machines. Uh, I'm sure there's photos of her standing proudly beside some hung upside down somewhere. All the kids gather around and after the photo, they scramble and get the glossettes. Does she talk like Quint from Jaws? She does. The vending machine had lifeless eyes, <laughs> doll's eyes. They rolled back black when, I, when it grabbed me. Well, she's not going to be getting many sharks in Arizona. She, she, so she's, so originally, she's going to call sharks, but she's in Arizona, so it was a right. bit difficult. So it, she vending had to machines. go vending machines. Yeah. So next up, we have Sarah Weston. And Sarah is in Gloucester. Ontario. Gloucester, Ontario. Yeah. And so what does Sarah Weston do there in Gloucester, Ontario? Space psychologist. So like outer space? The study of mental well-being of astronauts and how they cope in the rigorous conditions of space. So she essentially advises panels on whether or not astronauts are suited for certain missions ahead of the flights. Oh, my goodness. That, that sounds kind of, that sounds like a really cool job. Yeah. And, you know, as we prepare for Mars, uh, there's more and more opportunities. Right. Because people are going to go wackadoo being in space for a really long time. I go wackadoo if I'm in my house alone for half an hour. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> well, thank you, Sarah. Next up from Augusta, Maine, right over there across the border from New Brunswick, we have... BJ. Hello, BJ. So what does BJ do there in Augusta, Maine? BJ is a Munchausen by proxy fitness specialist. (laughs) I know what Munchausen by proxy is because that's about the mom who 
tells people the kid's sick. People like me Mm -hmm. who don't have the time or the inclination to exercise, Mm -hmm. she exercises for us. Oh. (laughs) So we can say that we have a regular fitness regime. Oh, there you go. So it does it for you. Yep. Wow. I run five days a week. So BJ does it for you. That's really, really interesting. Hmm. Well, thanks, BJ. That is a very bizarre uh, job to have. Next up is our PayPal donut money donor for the week. It's Amber Tortorelli. Amber! Amber, and she says, for Steve. I know he's been feeling under the weather. So this is for please buy him a little something on me. We will. Yeah. Probably a, a yak milk chew. Does he like those yak milk oh chews? Oh my God, he loves them so I'll much. buy him some yak milk chews when I come over. Do you want to know what Amber does for a living? Yeah, I'm curious about what Amber Tortorelli does for a living. She's a lipstick namer. She names lipstick? Yeah, so also blushes and nail polish. But she's, she's responsible for names like Teal the Cows Come Home, Unicorn Blood, F-Bomb, Cherries in the Snow, and Pervet. Pervet? <laughs> Pervest. Those are real lipstick names, by the way. I know they are because uh, there are some real creative ones. Uh, Color Pop is a is a makeup store that uh, yeah. a few friends like, yeah. and they have really creative names. So there you go. Well, that is it for this week's episode. Oh boy! Thank you to all our patrons and donut money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine or for a one-time donation, you can send us donut money via PayPal at our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot to us if you did so. You can easily find Dark Poutine on iTunes, Podcast, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. Other, uh, well, I don't know why I'm saying those words. Check out our website, darkpoutine.com for show notes and other cool stuff. Please take your time. Please take the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening and tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. Until we return, don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. Bye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye. No, bye to you. Bye. Showcase. You were in a concentration camp in World War II. I was a young man, locked up in a terrible place. Based on the international best-selling book. But I found something there. Someone. We must keep living. Whatever it takes. The Tattooist of Auschwitz. All new Sundays on Showcase. Stream on Stack TV.